0: The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota.
1: Good evening, everyone. Thanks for coming out on this beautiful evening. My name is Ramesh. Um, I I sub for Mark from time to time. Um, yeah, um, I've been coming to Common Ground for about 12, 13 years, um, do a few workshops and um, also serve on the board at the moment. And some of you have probably heard me talk here before um, and my practice is to just share some aspects of my own practice. Sorry, two words. Uh, my habit here is to share some aspects of my, uh, my own um, mindfulness practice. Um, and try to keep it simple because that's where I'm stuck at for the last 10 years. Um, but just in the last couple of months, um, my commitment to practice took a turn, uh, for the positive I hope, and I, felt, I feel this energy to share it with, um, with everyone. Um, and my first attempt at doing that was about 10 days ago on a Sunday, um, didn't go down well. Uh, so this is take two, and uh, let's see how it goes. And the diff. can you all hear me? The mic seems to be, or is it the placement, what about now, you can hear, okay. Um, and it is that um, I've always kept my talks to the basics of practice. Um, just. What does it take to commit oneself to just the routines of mindfulness practice? What is Vipassana? What is concentration? Um, And I've steered away from some of the um, formal teachings just because I'm at the very bottom level when it comes to uh, study, um, but also feel like one ought to really commit oneself to a depth of study before um, sitting up here and preaching. But I found that I can talk about some of what I'm studying, hopefully by how it connects to daily practice. And so what I'll be trying to do today is um, talk a little bit about two of the most foundational teachings in um, in our tradition, the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path. And not in the esoteric um, uh, scholarly uh, discourse, but more about how I've connected to them for the tenth or fifteenth time, but now with a renewed sense of how I can apply them and how I've been trying to apply them in daily routine. So, um, so, as a preamble, what I so we all come to mindfulness practice um, with kind of two perspectives. And I'm going to use two terms just as labels. So, uh, so just use them as placeholders, not for their you know, deeper meaning. So I'm going to talk about a secular approach and a spiritual approach. So many of us come to mindfulness practice either as, a, as looking for something that is wholesome. Like it's part of a wholesome living. Diet, exercise, some yoga, and some meditation because we've heard it's good for us. So it's a piecemeal thing but it's still better than all the alternatives available to us. And so some of you who do yoga practice and have studied the background will realize that uh, what's practiced as yoga is just Hatha yoga. And it's just, and if you know about the Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, what's practiced as yoga is just stage three. And if you do some pranayama, it also includes some stage four. But then we skip all the others, stage one, stage two, which are preparation, and then stage five, six, seven, and eight. Again, again, nothing wrong in doing that, but then it requires a different level of energy to hold it all together. In the same way, we can approach mindfulness from this kind of secular uh, approach um, because it has physiological benefits, psychological benefits, and we can also apply it in our daily routine. And some of you practice martial arts in the same way, or yoga and tai chi, and they all have similar benefits. The challenge with doing this is it, either we're all extremely patient or we what drives us to lead this kind of a wholesome life uh, is fairly strong. But otherwise, as you know from the you know, many, many years of making resolutions and failing, our commitment to these kinds of um, good, healthy practices tends to fade away after a few months. And, okay, <laughs> one honest person. Uh, so, So how do you hold it together? So some of us you know, join clubs or do it with our you know, spouses or friends, etc. But it still has this sense of, I have to do it because it's good for me. It's like a cognitive effort. It's like, I have to do it. And, and that's why we keep often failing. The other thing is the kind of spiritual approach. Again, I'm using the word spiritual in quotes. I'm mostly just as a placeholder. And this is approaching, whether it's yoga or mindfulness meditation, from a desire for a deeper understanding, from a sense of what's the overarching metaphysical, ethical, moral, spiritual perspective that's going to help me stay on the path, stay committed to these wholesome activities, even when every fiber of my being says, you know, go to the fridge, pick out the Hagen dazs sit in front of the TV, and just snuff your... You know, whatever your poison is. Those of you who heard me speak before, Haagen-Dazs is my poison. Uh, although now, uh, cedar crest, caramel collision <laughs> is divine. Um, so, And so it's, it's a deeper level of commitment that requires a commitment not cognitively, but to use that off-quoted word, it's in a kind of embodied way. It, it becomes a part of your being, like a daily routine. And that's why I've committed to... I've gotten into the habit in my own meditation practice, but also when I guide here, that towards the end of the guided meditation, always link the practice to daily life. Because as you all know, 30 minutes or even an hour of mindfulness practice is easily undone by 15 hours of mindlessness in our daily life. It's still better than, you know, not doing that meditation for an hour, but it requires a lot of, um, it, it's unrealistic to expect, as I said, 12, 15 hours of mindlessness to be compensated for by just an hour of mindful meditation. So, um, just this is a very brief introduction to the two core teachings that I mentioned earlier. So the first one is the Four Noble Truths. And so the first noble truth is there is suffering in life. And so, yeah, as they say, bad things happen. But it's not just bad things happen, we experience distress, discontentment, or uneasiness. Even when things seem to be okay, there is a background sense of uneasiness. So that's the first noble truth. And often that discontentment, that distress, or suffering is due to uh, craving, attachment. Um, And that's the second noble truth. That The way we relate to events in life creates suffering in our own existence. And the third noble truth is that there is a possibility of freedom from this distress. And the fourth noble truth is the path that um, is outlined and that that path is the Noble Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path is clustered eight components and it's clustered in in English it would be wisdom, cluster, Ethical conduct cluster and uh, concentration cluster, um, so it's Punya, Sila, and uh, samadhi so in as it's taught in the kind of traditional teachings, the sequence starts with wisdom, which is kind of odd, and so we'll talk about that in a minute. So it starts with right view, right thought or right intention, so that's the wisdom cluster, and then you have ethical conduct which is right speech, right action, right livelihood and then the last cluster the concentration is right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration. So today I'll just focus on the first uh, cluster, the wisdom cluster and just touch upon one aspect of ethical conduct as an example of what I'm trying to do um, as part of this practice. So just a quick background to why I'm talking about this today as a change from my last few years of not of avoiding these teachings is that there was a sense that even though I've been coming here with a fair amount of commitment for over a decade it always felt like a bit of a hit and miss that there was a bit of a push that I had to engage in to stay committed and so there was this absence of this overarching framework to protect me at times when I needed a kind of sheer willpower to keep doing the right things. And an honest acknowledgement was a big part of what was missing was ethical conduct. I can con myself into believing that I'm a good person, but ethical conduct is not just being good or bad. Uh, And as I'll talk about, at least my take on ethical conduct comes from a sense of intention um, and Again, I'll explain that in a few minutes. So that's where I started. And even though I'd read Four Noble Truths and Eight Noble, pa- Eight Noble uh, so the Eightfold Path many, many, many times, it became, there was a mechanical quality. I've read that, done that, know that, until something happened two, three months ago. And I think it was the sense of something's not right. Let me see what was I missing. And suddenly these ideas started popping up. And so that's what I'm hoping to share with you. So, the so as I said, if you you know, for many of you, your life may not allow you the freedom to to commit to something like the totality of the path. By the way, this talk has a really pompous title called "Committing to the totality of the path." You know, I, once I decided, you know, I'm not going to remain simple. Why not go full bore into the fullness of my ego? Commitment to the totality of the path. Way to go. Um, So it's that I realize that if you read it as a, you know, one single sutta, one single guideline, oh my God, what am I going to focus on? Is it right action, right livelihood? What is right view, right intention? But then some teachers call it resolve. Some call it, um, you know, there are all kinds of words that are used. And then you could easily get bogged down into a confused state and then say, you know, it's too much for me. I'm just going to keep going back to just 30 minutes of practice every day at least it's better than the alternative. Again, it's okay to do that. And many of you, your circumstances of your life may not permit you to do other things. But for others who have this sense of, you know, this is what I've signed up for, and I'm gonna sign up for it for the rest of my life. This, at least I'm finding this energy that um, I hope will sustain me. And uh, whatever I share with you today are more uh, kind of examples for you to go back and study and hopefully find some more uh, some inspiration from your own study. So first thing is to acknowledge that the word right in the right view, right action, right livelihood can be troublesome to many of us as if there's a right or wrong. You know some of us have this very innate dichotomous view of life, um, certain upbringings and many of my patients um, of Catholic upbringing, tell me how difficult it is for them to see things, hold things in a gray area. It's so much sin, guilt, right, wrong, and so uh, to hear right view is a little troublesome. So many teachers have acknowledged this, and they'll talk about you know complete view, or you know there is a, you don't have to use the word right. You can use any other uh, word, analogous word that is you know gentle and soft. And as Stephen Batchelor you know, pointed out in one of those chants towards the Buddha that you hear many monks say, you know, namotasabhagavato arahato sammah The sammah is the same sama as in samadhiti, or right view. Um, so if, if samadhiti means right view, then Samma Sambuddhasa means rightly enlightened one, as if there was a wrongly enlightened one. And so many translations you find for right or for sama is completely or totally or comprehensively. So when you hear the word right view or right action or right livelihood, what you're looking at is not right or wrong, correct or incorrect, but it's a sense of am I approaching this particular task? Am I approaching this relationship to speech, livelihood, with the totality of the perspective? and then the other thing to remember is that these eight steps are not um, often they can be seen in a linear fashion and those of us who are addicted to goal-directed living you know I'll start this and go here and go here Um, and as I hopefully I'll give you some examples uh, they are not discrete steps often they have a kind of a very interdependent relationship and Bhikkhu Bodhi one of our senior uh, monks in, in the United States he gave a beautiful analogy that really has helped me, is to look at it as the individual strands of a cable. So each strand by itself is fairly weak, but eight of them together has a strength. But what I found really helpful is that the cable is a twisted form. And so if you look at a the twist, then if there's pressure from the top, then the bottom is supporting it. So each strand is not only supporting each, each other by the just the mutual company, but being entwined, they're actually supporting each other. And so that somewhat concrete view also has helped me quite a bit. And so not to get bogged down in what am I doing, am I practicing this today or this, and more about, you know, what feels right today, I'm going to get into it, but I know that it's going to support the rest, part, rest of my practice as well. So let's get into, um, oh, and the other thing is to remember that the word right can also, have this connotation of uh, you shall do this and if you don't do this you're doing it wrong and so some of you have certain spiritual backgrounds religious backgrounds may be two and two commandments thou shalt thou shalt not and so if you've done this vipassana practice for a while you know it's all about practicing there is no right or wrong and it's all about practicing and trying it for yourself And now for the really confusing part. So right view. So samadhiti. And so one way of looking at it is this is a broad framework that you bring to um, any commitment that you take on in life. So it has to be guided by some basic principles. And so uh, it's like um, you know if, you, if you're going on a long road trip, to places that you don't know, um, you won't just say, I'm going to get in my car and then go there. You know, you get a map. You consult some people who are familiar with that area. So even though they're just giving you pointers and you're the one that has to actually go through the journey, having some of these pointers to kind of um, you know, keep you from wandering away, drifting away, will get you through the journey. So if you headed towards LA and suddenly you see a sign for Atlanta, you know you're heading in the wrong direction. But if you didn't have a sense of the map of the United States and knew that Atlanta is southeast and LA is southwest, then you could be wandering away. And a lot of and when you see the you know the totality of the practice and the amount of suffering that we experience in day-to-day life, one day you may be reaching after a samadhi, one day compassion, one day vipassana, one day generosity and then one day boredom and Hagen you know? And it's that sense of, and then someday you give up. And so, so one analogy is to have this general sense of the lay of the land and then also some guidance from some teachers. And then there are two ways of looking at right view. So one is called mundane right view. And mundane right view is just a very cognitive and... Um, It's a volitional aspect of you're faced with a choice, and you decide, I'm going to do this because it feels right. So you folks being here this evening was a choice you made, and so that was mundane right view. You didn't realize that, but your mind decided that this seems to be wholesome, and you chose to come here. But there's nothing in the background saying that, you know, why did I do this? If you ask yourself, you may not have a sense. But if you stop, drop the thought about why did I come and then connect to the heart, there is this some aspirational energy that you would feel that some would call the beginnings of right view. And so some teachers then say this is mundane right view which you need to keep showing up. And so the first time many folks come to a meditation center is either in response to some distress in life or as I said earlier, as a component of healthy living. So that's mundane right view that brings in. And then those of you who've been coming here again and again, like I've been here coming here for over 10 years, what kept me coming back, even after many months of falling off the wagon, was this mundane right view. Somehow cognitively I knew that this was an appropriate thing to do. Okay, but as I said earlier, it's difficult to sustain it over and over again. So the next level is the, some teachers call it superior right view. Again, I would like to use the word spiritual, a little more wholesome right view. It is you need some guiding principles. And so the two that are uh, often taught in, um, you know, by, uh, by our teachers is one is a, a trust in the law of karma. And the law of karma is fairly simple in the Buddhist context. It is that actions have consequences. And so, again, it's not a concrete level of if I do this, this is good. If I do this, this is bad. But more at a heart level that this is a wholesome thing to do. So this evening when you had a choice of coming here or not, there was some connection to that. And so part of the right view is to slowly, whenever life offers you that opportunity, to connect to there's this softness, there is this heart level Feeling of this is the right thing to do. And if you trust in this practice, keep reaching on to that, connecting with that over and over again, because that's what will then you're strengthening that as opposed to depending on the cognitive aspect to keep showing up. Okay? And then the other thing is, and this is the part that's helped me, is to connect to, so one um, right view is to uh, trust in the law of karma and the second right view is to acknowledge the truth of the first and second noble truths and again those of you who have been coming here these truths are not to be believed as indoctrination these are to be experienced tested in day to day life and so when i believe that i hate traffic i haven't trust, you know i haven't really tested that hypothesis and for me the test happened when I was driving from St. Paul to Minneapolis for a meeting that I hated, and I got stuck in traffic, and I loved traffic. Ah, so there's nothing intrinsic about traffic that I dislike. It's my relationship with traffic that determines my suffering. So on that day, it was so easy to call my colleagues and say, oh, Don, and not only did I escape the meeting, I took the next exit and went (laughs) back to the office and didn't tell anyone so. Except I'm announcing it now, so. <laughs> so, and, and, and some of you have heard me give you, you know, other examples. I hate checkout lines. And I believe that. And even now, I know that that's a story. You will still find me at Cub at 6.30 in the morning on Saturdays because I cannot stand checkout lines in grocery stores. But we had visitors one Saturday. TV was on. Loud, noisy, sports talk and my wife sent me out to CUB at 10.30 in the morning and I was the happiest man in the longest checkout line. <laughs> <laughs> Again, there's nothing, I, until that moment. But the reason I have trust in this practice is there was some part of me that was constantly looking for examples of the kind life. And this was a, and I've had many other examples. And so it's that, oh, I go to a buffet where there's dessert and I'm a sweet freak and the same mouthful of dessert. The first mouthful is heaven, second is semi-heaven, third is okay, and by the fifth or sixth, because I paid the money, I'm snarfing it down, I am suffering, okay? And on and on. But keep looking for those examples. So another right view is to trust in the, the appropriateness or the truth of the first and second noble truths. And to me, that's where, that's for me the right view. And that's where I find energy. So any time I find myself in a state of distress, and I do is keep it simple. Come back to the present moment. Instead of spinning off into a story about this person is pissing me off, is that really true? What's happening? And so come back to the body. And, you know, it requires some practice. But then you can see that a significant component of the distress of this moment is my relationship to this stimulus. So that's the kind of um, the kind of right view. So you can pick one of these two as your guiding principles, and as you uh, you know relate to life, see if you can connect to one of these as your guiding, um, as your energetic guides, as you make decisions about should I come to meditation, should I do something else. So the second one would be the second of the eight noble uh, eightfold path is. Again translated variously as right thought, right intention. Um, I like Thanissaro uh, Bhikkhu's word which is, right, uh, which is resolve. And it's a sense of where do you find that next level. So the first right view is this framework of this is how my actions are going to be guided. But then where do I find that determination to actually translate that into some actions. And so So there is this resolve, not in a forceful, determined, I am going to do this or I am not, but more connecting to, you know, um, again, where in my heart am I going to find that feeling that this is the right thing to do? And again, hopefully I'll give you my examples that I share with you uh, would be helpful. So this is the background energy. And this is what keeps us from getting distracted too much. So in the traditional teachings, there are three components of right resolve, right thought, or right intention. So one is renunciation, a very tough word for many of us. Renunciation is something you apply to monks. Uh, But you can think about, um, for example, uh, the, the kind of opposite of renunciation is generosity. So instead of renouncing something that feels like a ripping off from me, I'm actually giving myself to someone else or giving myself a sense of, you know, by not having this ice cream, I am treating myself kindly because my connection to ice cream and my giving in every time is actually strengthening that habit pattern and eventually setting me up for more suffering down the line. So, But I didn't find this very helpful, so I just have to mention it. Renunciation is the first one. Second one is goodwill. And so those of you who practiced um, loving kindness know how helpful it is in times of distress. And so you may find that this particular situation is causing me a lot of anguish, a lot of distress, and my reactive patterns want me to do something unwholesome. So you can connect to this softness in your heart about um, sending compassion towards another person, traffic, whatever else. That is the third component that I found most helpful in my uh, personal commitment, which is harmlessness, this desire not to harm someone. And if you look at it, they're all interrelated, but each of these words, each of these components speaks to us very differently. And for me, the sense of harmlessness was so easy, um, first of all, because I began applying it to myself you know I realized that in so many situations when I was acting out I was harming myself so I'm in traffic even free-flowing traffic and then I run into someone not run into someone you know someone breezes past me in a manner that I disapprove of you know in my holier than thou view and often say let's say it's somebody it's 55 mile an hour speed limit they're doing 50 and they are and the, the two lanes on either side are empty so I'll zoom past them, I'll look, and I convey this unwholesome speech, and then I'm gone. And, you know, it doesn't take long to realize that, yeah, that was unwise, but I recognize that engaging in this practice mindlessly over and over again, the only person who was being harmed was me. But if this poor soul happened to look at me, I harmed them as well. I know nothing about that person, and completely mindlessly I harmed that person. And so same way... If I, you know, if I, if I have a stressful day and my habit pattern is sugar, there is no connection between sugar and stress. I have formed a connection over 40 years of engaging, indulging in it. But if I recognize it, I'm not, I don't, without having to say I shouldn't have it, I can recognize that I have surrendered my well-being to this blob of cold brown stuff. And I'm not even enjoying it. You know, when I'm eating it out of guilt or out of stress, I'm eating it mindlessly. And halfway through, I'm already feeling guilty. And so I'm not doing anything wholesome, and I'm harming myself. So I found that very helpful. And one personal example I'd like to share with is in my professional practice. So I'm a psychiatrist. Um, I'm a geriatric psychiatrist. So, you know, dementia, aging, end-of-life, stroke, that comes naturally to me. I'm very comfortable creating a space for my patients and families. But child psychiatry, seeing the suffering of children and adolescents just is very hard for me to um, be with. Uh, And won't go into those details, but I do a lot of work in the emergency rooms and it was just in the last couple of months of doing this, I recognized that this 13-year-old child coming from this hellish home situation in the ER in a crisis and I go there, and I feel that oh, I, I recognize you poor thing, but I can't hold it because my mind says I need to fix it. Because I can't fix it, I turn away and walk away. So that was the false view that I have to fix it. And, if, you know, you can build all kinds. So that's where the first thing is, if I'm coming from a sense of first and second noble truths, then this child's plight is the first, is, there is distress in life. And the second distress is I can't stand with this. But then where, where I found the energy now to stay with that is I don't want to cause this child any harm. And the one thing I can do at that moment is stay with the child for another five minutes, make eye contact, just give the child some trust that there are adults in their life who can who don't always harm them. You know, so it's just it's a little bit, but it's just that was one of the most powerful experiences that kind of you know, uh, energize my commitment to the totality of the path. Uh, and so you look for your own areas, some of these dark areas. But this is when I realized that intellectual commitment to I have to stay with this has this tightness, has this forcedness. But I've never trusted in my ability to connect with the heart practice. I've never done any Brahma Viharas. But yeah, this to me is a hard practice. I don't want to harm someone either by act of commission or act of omission or act of avoidance. And so look at areas in your life where you feel the tightness and you recognize that it's from uh, your, the way you're relating to that situation. And maybe you can um, stay with the situation with some softening of your heart. So, So how do I put it together? Again, with perhaps a couple of examples. So you can take an example of a, a committed relationship, a marriage, a spouse, some family relationship. And so one way of maintaining harmony is to say, I will listen to this person. I will treat them with kindness. I will help them with household chores. I won't cheat on them. I won't abuse them, etc." They're all kind of discrete tasks. But those of you who've been in committed relationships for a while, you know, that our partners have a way of testing us. And so the first one would be, screw it, you know? Well, if you're going to take the snarky tone, then I'm also going to take a snarky tone. Um, And then on to eventually, there is a reason why the divorce rate is 50 plus percent is because we can stretch it out and create an excuse for even cheating on our partners. Because there's always a way out. Because what's holding these relationships are discrete line items, but not this totality of something that's holding it all together because the true test is in those stressful moments when you feel like snapping at your sister, your spouse, or a colleague at work, something tells you don't do any harm. We, you know, send them goodwill or whatever or renounce this desire to be right. Okay, there's a disagreement, philosophical, political, whatever, And then the renunciation is, you know, maybe it's okay if that person can win this argument. But you need that kind of framework, ethical, energetic framework that will help you stay the course. So hopefully that example is somewhat concrete. I found it extremely helpful at work. You know, when I find colleagues or, you know, administrators or patients misbehaving, what do I bring there other than I shouldn't misbehave because I'm a doctor and I can get into h r. trouble. those are all cognitive stuff, but it's a sense that I don't want to harm this person, but every time I act out of my conditioned reactive patterns, I'm just harming myself. So the first thing, first do no harm, directed at oneself, uh, I found very helpful. So the final example I'll give as a kind of uh, more a um, an invitation for you to. Um, consider areas of your life for practice. Is the first of the um, ethical conduct cluster, which is wise speech. And like many of you, I this I thought would be the easy one. You know, wise speech. Yep, I'm, I'm I mouth off. I'm an idiot. So let me watch what I say. But you know how difficult it is. You know, you speak and then you pause and then you think and then you apply the brakes. That's a typical pattern for many of us. And so, the basic components of wise speech are, according to the traditional teachings, um, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not slander, thou shalt not speak harshly of someone, and thou shalt not gossip. Good luck trying any of these if you see them as commandments. And I, I use that phrase, thou shalt not, somewhat deliberately because even those of us, like me, didn't come from a Christian Ten Commandments background, there is something about speech that we hear it as a commandment. You know, lying in every culture is considered bad, wrong. But as the you kind of oft quoted example, you know, if you were a Christian uh, in Holland and Anne Frank was in your basement and the Nazis came, would you, thou shalt not lie, and deliver Anne Frank to the Nazis or would you lie? And that's where I found the Buddhist concept of these why speech so helpful because it takes away the burden of right and wrong but more what do you bring and that's why it's so essential to have a framework of right view and more importantly the right intention. It's like am I going to commit any harm here or which of the two choices both of them potential harm um, is the more appropriate thing based on my framework whether based on law of karma or the first and second noble truths. So looking at from that perspective, I realized that, yeah, it's not that gossip is bad. Because those of you who believe in evolutionary psychology, the gossip evolved in us for a very valid reason. When we lived in small, discrete, isolated tribes, if you did not toe the line, then you'd be cast out from the tribe. And your half-life would be one or two days, depending on your... If you were in the desert, you'd dry of starvation and thirst. If you are in the jungle, a tiger would eat you. So, you know, it's there. And many of us can't help it. You realize, I don't want to gossip. And then somebody says, did you hear that? And you apply the brakes, but you can feel the zing. And so you are listening, but I shouldn't. I'm a Buddhist, all that statements. So you're not bringing the wise view, wise intention. So, again, I, I, I throw it out as a way for you to reflect on. But for gossip, one of the things I recognized, um, this is an example from a few years ago, but with hindsight, I recognized that perhaps this is what was happening. So, my, my wife is a chemical engineer, and she worked at a plant in Texas uh, where I did my residency. And so, were, my wife and four of her colleagues, two women and two men, had this really nasty, nasty boss. And, you know, very macho, Texan. Um, he, you know, I don't want to be generalizing, but he fit many of the kind of uh, criteria. And so and that's the amount of stress, you know, inconsistency, bossing, and then at 5.30 he'd call a meeting. Uh, he really had not much of a life. And so knowing when somebody had a personal plan, he would call a meeting. And he would say, you know, Jane, I need to talk to you at 5 o'clock this evening, knowing that she had made some plans and things like that. And so they would meet once a month at a local um, um, uh, you know, watering hole and to just vent. And so one, one day they invited me because of my psychiatric background. They said, you know, what are we missing? You know, just help us you know, deal with this guy. And I was, you know, this is all 20, 20 years ago. But now as I reflect on that, this was a wholesome setting. These five people, you know, this was a way of connecting with each other, It allowed them to keep coming back to work day after day after day. But as I now reflect back on that, say I had been one of those colleagues suffering under this boss, but if I also had a commitment not to gossip, is it possible for me to be with them and create a kind of a wholesome, safe space, allow them to kind of give them a compassionate space, allow them to open up? Without slandering this other person, you can go along because your heart is not to slander the boss or to just kind of in, you know, indulge in the pleasure of the gossip, but to create a sense of, I want to you know, ease the distress of my colleagues. Again, I'm stretching it a little bit here, but since gossip is such a big part of our lives and how much we struggle with it, at least I do, because I have a moralistic view about darshan, not gossip, it's just one way. But I, in, in the 21st century, we have a couple of easier examples. It doesn't have to be verbal communication. We have plenty of examples of non-verbal communication where you can practice wise speech. That Twitter, that uh, feed, that you know, Facebook, do you know, did you hear? You don't have to forward it. You know that Twitter or that email that you just, you know, you got an email and you immediately draft a response. And so you can do it cognitively, just to pause. But then, if it's also coming from the framework of right view and a desire not to harm anyone, then use that as a way to slow down the process. And so think of all the ways in which you, without using verbal communication, are engaging in harsh speech or slander or even gossip. And for me, I realized that uh, this last weekend I uh, led a retreat on these same topics. I was coming to this retreat on these topics and I was passing by this person in the slow car and as my head was just about to turn I realized that yeah my tendency to give are you kidding me kind of look is harsh speech and at the end of the day you know that person doesn't look at me I'm harming myself and so yeah so it's more and more I connect to my body I can feel the energy, energy patterns that are involved in a harsh speech That may not even involve actual saying anything. So just some practical strategies. It would be to study these teachings, but hopefully with a fresh eyes, not as in I've read that, been there, done that, but more about can you pick one or two components and see if you can apply them to some aspects of your daily life where you feel like, you know, there is some dukkha here, but can I understand this suffering not from, this happened, this triggered me, this is my reactive, and this is what I have to do. But more as a sense of can I hold it in my heart and mind and then start saying what is in my heart that will allow me not to keep reacting the way I've been doing in the past. It is a lifelong pursuit. It's often, it's better to do it in a shared way. And so, you know, thank you for showing up today and listening to me. Uh, just because this is one of the ways I get a sense of what feels right and what doesn't feel right, uh, because it's my intention not to cause harm, but you know it, this talk may not resonate with many of you, um, but I have to accept that you know that's what it is, and so it's it's what it is. Uh, but that's part of the practice. Is that a few years ago I would have been mulling over this for a few days, and so it's. You know, my desire is to show myself up with sincerity, but how it goes, once the words leave my mouth, that's what they are. Um, so, um, yeah. And so it's more with the desire that some of you may have a similar kind of um, energy that I experienced in connecting with these practices. So we have a few minutes left. If you have any questions to unravel the confusion you're feeling. Yeah, I could have put it better. So I think this gentleman was pointing out the the analogy of the strands of the cable. And so I think for many of us, and I was there many years ago when I looked at the Eightfold Path, because of my linear problem-solving kind of approach to life, it's like, where do I start? What do I deal with first? But also, if then I concluded that maybe I should do all of this at the same time. Then you'd feel like I'm just doing too many things. But it's that... Awareness that without some concentration, you can't attend to the present moment. But then, without some commitment to um, you know some ethical conduct, you can't concentrate either, because if you spend ten hours of the day mindlessly surfing and twittering and twittering, tweeting, uh, <laughs> "I'm not on social media," uh, or you know Facebook, you realize that that momentum cannot just you can't just screech to a halt and say. Next 30 minutes, I'm going to focus on my breath. So you have to give up some aspect of that, but not giving up as in completely, but are there things in your life that you can begin to slow down? And that's why it is you pick and choose, but whatever you pick, you want to stay at least for a few months at a time to build some connection. And to those of you who wonder about what's the big deal about focusing on the body with every mindfulness meditation said. It is that so much of our reactive patterns come out of energies in the body. Because again, evolutionarily, anytime we feel threatened or anxious, it's fight, flight, or freeze response. And so all those things are conditioned. So this traffic person who is slowing me down, there is this aggressive tendency, but because I'm a civilized person, I'm not acting that out, but boy, there is so much connection. So as you train yourself to keep coming back to the body, before you even know what's happening, you will feel the tension. And that's what I felt on Saturday, that kind of tightness in my neck. And so, so all these things feed off of each other. And initially you, and especially those of you who are new to practice, just be comfortable with the mundane right view. Just want to cognitively believe that this is, I'm going to give this six to 12 months and see if it helps me. And then connect with some teachings and then slowly see if, Some of those can help begin softening your heart with a sense of goodwill to others or harmlessness to others. We have time for one more question or comments. No, please.
0: I'm Don. And usually when I wake up in the morning, I'm just uh, Uh, fully... I wake up early. I don't know if it's some kind of insomnia, like four. Then I maybe go back to try to get back to sleep for a while. But I lay there and toss and turn. And then I realize, oh, I forgot to do this. I forget. And it just kind of escalates. And then um, I finally get up about 6 o'clock. And then, uh, you know, I do some kind of, I do some prayers and stuff like that. And uh, um, so I think that's kind of what you're talking about with uh, setting some intentions Um, and it kind of snaps me out of it. I'm kind of in a, uh, sort of a quasi like panic kind of depressed kind of state. And then I'm like, okay, how can I be of some kind of service today? And, um, then I kind of snap out of that a little bit. And then, um, I go on with my day and I'm working at a, uh, nursing home care center. And, uh, I was, had some things going on and then it was time for lunch and I was, beautiful day out so I was going to bolt out to the park that's nearby there and um, I ran into this uh, gentleman who uh, I had met earlier uh, about a week ago and uh, we were kind of talk. I was kind of talking with him and uh, he said you know uh, he was just kind of uh, sitting on a bench and uh, he said you know I, I don't think I really want to go on <laughs> and uh, I'm like well I, I kind of get that <laughs> it's like um and so I'd see him in the hall and, uh, I'd say, Oh, how you doing today? And so I've been kind of striking up conversations with them. And so today, um, I decided, you know, I was, I was on my way to the park and I, I was on that, uh, almost, uh, quarter down the block. And I thought I seen him sitting on a bench and, uh, something within me just kind of said, turn around, go back. And I went back and, uh, I sat on the bench with them, and uh, to the right of the bench was actually where people kind of have been smoking, and so they throw their, their butts in there, and once in a while, I catch a little whiff of that smoke, like something's burning in there, and I'm trying to eat lunch, and, uh, you know, there's just this bench, and then people put cigarettes out on the sidewalk. But I'm sitting next to this guy, so uh, we start talking, and uh, and I'm just kind of starting to enjoy my lunch. And uh, another person kind of comes up and talks and stuff like that. But uh, it's it's kind of interesting how I, I if out of all the places. In fact, I started to tell them that I said you got the best seat in the house, and uh, I was out of the I said it's out of the shade or it's in the shade, and uh, but it really was. It's like you know. But I was able to kind of overcome all the 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 nicotine smell uh, from the dead, the butts and things like that, and really had a really good lunch with this person and uh it really kind of made my day um so uh i guess it, it's like uh, this kind of whole thing about i think where i may be coming with on that on that woven part of the cable i love that analogy where they're all twisted together is coming at a spot where maybe my i set an intention for the day you know how could i be and not really even know it uh that, that during the day something is gonna kind of say turn around and go back, and um, I just felt uh, I felt I don't know uh, what his reaction was. I think it was uh, now we're developing a friendship, but I certainly after that lunch, compare comparing to how I've had lunches in the park before, like you know, mine would wander, and this time coming back to work, I was kind of like. Um, my heart I think was more open so um, thank you for this talk and I think I was able to sort of connect some of the dots to some of these overall uh, senses of uh, intentions for me is what comes up really strong.
1: And those of you who have been coming here for a while know how often our teachers talk about what's your intention. I got so tired of hearing that word you go to a retreat uh, of any length they'll ask I mean, sometimes the very first day or two days, depending on the length, they'll ask you to focus on your intention, and we keep mistaking cognitive, intellectual intention with the kind of wholesome. Um, uh, you know, I don't. Do, the words fail us, but those of you who are connected to what brings you here, and it's often. You just, sometimes you just have to keep showing up, and then suddenly the chat has to, becomes easy, and you never know why. It's like you know. That whole place was associated with smell of cigarette butts and how it ruins my lunch. And then suddenly this intention of showing up for this person with some, again, it's not a cognitive, I want to help him, whatever it was. And so to me, for me who has been so skeptical about this hard practice, um, I've just, that's what has been the change in the last two months and uh, drove me to share my thoughts and experience with you. Um, If I caused any harm, It was with a sense of sincerity, but uh, hopefully some of this has been helpful to you.
0: This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.
1: Thank you for listening.